more time. My name is Stephanie. I'm one of the pastors here. I'm just excited to see a few new faces. If I haven't met you yet, I'd love to meet you. We're going to start a new conversation today. So before we do that, let's start with a word of prayer, if you'd pray with me. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we welcome you into this place. Jesus, we believe that you inhabit our praises as we've been praising you. We thank you that uh, the reality of Easter is not just for a day or for a week, but for our lives, and that we get to live in relationship with a God who is alive and active and moving in our lives. And so, God, we pray that you would make a difference in our life today, that you'd be speaking to us and impressing things upon our heart as we look at your word. And we pray that your spirit would remain here in this place, that this school would be different tomorrow because of your presence here, that the kids and the faculty and the staff would uh, experience this place in a different way because you are making a difference here. And so uh, we, we thank you for the hospitality of this school. We don't take it for granted that we get to be here worshiping you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, so I, whenever we have the community time question, it's the job of the pastor who's speaking to come up with the question. And I'm just terrible at these questions. Like, wasn't that the weirdest thing ever? Like, if you see somebody you recognize, would you go up to them or not? The answer is the same for everyone, right? It depends. Like, it depends on who it is and why you'd approach them. Maybe a few of you are like, no way, never approaching anyone. And then Rollins like, yeah, I would just holler at him and say, hey, how do I know you? Okay, so he's that guy. So this, this is a situation in my life that I wanted to bring up, which is why I brought the question, you know, there's no secrets here. Okay, so for me, I often recognize people's faces. Who are the people who recognize the faces? Okay, but I forget people's names. And even if it's absolutely like I should completely know their name, I'm so anxious about forgetting their name that it leaves my brain right in that moment. Anybody else have that experience? Okay, so here's another experience that I have, and that is that I, I recognize somebody, and as I see them coming towards me, my brain is going through, where do I know them from? Does anybody else have this experience? Like, you recognize them, but you don't know how you know them. This happens to me more than I'd like to admit, and I, I, I want to be honest and say it makes me feel really awkward, okay? So as a very extroverted person, I still have like a, a measure of social anxiety about this, okay? So when, so this happened a few weeks ago. I was at Target, the place for all awkward social interactions, right? You're just going down the aisle, looking for your things, and then you catch some, the eye of somebody that you recognize. Now, if you make the eye contact, you kind of have to go with it then, right? There's, it's, it's weird to just move on when you make the eye contact. And so I ran into this person, and they came up to me, and I said, hey, how are you? That's not what you should say. Okay, because sometimes someone says, I'm good, how are you? But this person started to share about their life. And I didn't know why I knew them. And so I, it, I, we passed the point of no return. I couldn't say, actually, I know I said, how are you? But I don't know who you are. I don't remember. I see your face. How do we know each other? It was too late, right off the bat. And so in this moment, I'm, I'm talking to this person, and they're sharing about their life, and they're, they're updating me about the life that I'm supposed to know about, but I don't. And as they're talking, this is what I'm doing. I'm thinking, context clues. What are they saying that could, do we know each other from high school? Maybe we, maybe this is somebody from college. Okay, I think it's somebody that I went to college with. Good, good, good. And then as I'm kind of wondering if I can bring up the, the connection of college, they say, you know what, how's your mom? And on the outside, I go, you know, my mom's great. We're going to celebrate her 70th birthday next week. And on the inside, I'm going, not college, not college. They know my mom. It's not college. It's something else. Oh, shoot. Maybe it's the church I grew up at. Maybe this person is friends with someone. From, maybe, this, maybe their parents are friends with my parents. 
all right? And then at, at some point, I'm sure the look on my face is this kind of squinty sideways look at them because I'm so confused about who they are and they're sharing about their life. And at some point, you just, you can't, you can't go back. And, and what feels unfair to me about this situation is that I'm going to Target and I'm not in the context in which I knew the person, right? If I was at a college reunion, that's different. If we were in the context in which I knew the person, it's going to be totally different. It feels kind of unfair to me that I have to remember this and I'm filled with my social anxiety. But I think this is a common experience many of us have. When you encounter someone outside of the context in which you knew them, it's not as easy to recognize them. When you encounter somebody or something outside of the context in which you are expecting to see them, it's harder to recognize them. I hope I'm not the only one that struggles with this. And as I was thinking about that, I was thinking about what this might have to do with our relationship with Jesus. Okay, follow with me on this a little bit. For many of us, we've come to expect contexts or places or situations where we're going to encounter Jesus or the Holy Spirit in our lives. Think about that for a second. This is often a church service or perhaps a devotional space or some other time or place where it seems to be maybe a sacred space or a space that's set apart to meet with God. And so when we come to those places, I think we come with a, a spirit of expectation. And when we have that expectation, we're more likely to recognize God moving or saying something or doing something because in that context, we've come to expect that God might be doing something. And I wonder that if Jesus was trying to meet us in our everyday context, in the midst of our everyday lives, would we recognize him? And I don't just mean Jesus as the person, but, but would we recognize God's voice? Would we recognize God's movement? Would we recognize the Holy Spirit in our life if we were encountering the Holy Spirit or God's movement in a space we weren't, uh, a context we weren't typically expecting it to happen? Would we be more, be more like me in the awkward target encounter where Jesus is trying to get our attention, but it's outside of the context to recognize God's voice or God's movement in our lives? And so this new conversation we're starting today is just called You Are Here. You Are Here. Those little uh, teardrop icons have come to, to represent the symbol of where you find yourself on a map. Sometimes it's that little blinking light on your map saying like, here, this is right where you are. You are here. And the question that we're asking through this series for the next few weeks is this. Wherever you find yourself on a daily and weekly basis, do you see that Jesus wants to meet you right where you are? That God's spirit is moving around you. That, that God wants to get your attention, to speak to you, to invite you to join in to what God is doing right there in the world, right where you are. You are here. Obviously, at this moment, you're right here. But you are where you are. Do you believe that God is there too? So today, uh, put the, Roland, put up on the screen. This is my, my, my big idea I hope you take with you today. Jesus meets us in our everyday spaces and our ordinary chaos. Do we recognize him? Jesus meets us in our everyday spaces and our ordinary chaos. Do we recognize him? So what do I mean by everyday spaces? I mean the spaces where you live, where you work, where you play, where you learn, the spaces where you spend most of your time. And then ordinary chaos, this was a, a phrase that Pastor Christian Ann used at the Easter service for North City, and I just loved it. Ordinary chaos, does that not describe our everyday lives? <laughs> There's just the ordinary chaos, the things that we experience throughout our days, throughout our weeks. Perhaps it's the, the chaos of little kids in your home, or the errands, or the schedules, or the stressful meetings at work, or the to-do list that's a mile long, or relationship stress, 
or even the exciting things that are happening in your life. These are the, the ordinary chaos in our life. Chaos is not always bad, but it's always a lot. Jesus meets us in our everyday spaces and our ordinary chaos. Do we recognize him? So I, I want to do just a little bit of a, um, a looking back at the history of where people would have come to. Last week we celebrated Jesus' uh, life, death, and resurrection in Easter. But Jesus coming to earth was a revolutionary thing in so many ways, right? We could have a long conversation about the incarnation, that God chose to become a human. What a radical reality. But part of what's so significant about Jesus making this choice and that God coming to be in the flesh is that a human being also fully God walking around in ordinary spaces, the idea that God is meeting people in their ordinary spaces would have completely just busted up the paradigm of the people in the first century. Let me describe what their paradigm of understanding God would have been. So you've got these uh, people, the people of Israel, the Jewish people who are worshipers of Yahweh, the God of Scripture. What would have their paradigm been at that time as they thought about who God was? It would have been that God's presence is manifest most significantly in a building. This would have been the way people have thought of it. I'm going to simplify this a ton. And it's always risky to simplify the history of Israel. So I apologize to those of you who are like, don't miss those details. But let me just do a real simple. The history of Israel, God's people, God promised to be with God's people. And at the point in which Moses gets the Ten Commandments, we, it results in this thing called the Ark of the Covenant. Maybe you, people have heard about this. It's this large wooden crate of sorts, this large wooden covered in gold chest. And inside of it is the Ten Commandments. And, and this became the, the, the space in which people began to believe that God's Spirit was most powerfully manifested. To the point that if you touched it, you would die. Okay? And people would carry it around on some poles so they didn't actually touch it. And then as the God's people were wandering in the wilderness, they would carry this with them, and then they would stop, and they'd make, make camp, and they'd put up a big tent that they called the tabernacle, and it was kind of like a, a tent for God. And then God was residing in this space. And then we skip forward to the point where Solomon builds this grand temple, and really literally saying that they're building a house for God, as though the God of the universe needed a house on earth, okay? And this idea that people are going to come to this place to meet with God. And in this large temple, there's many courts. And in the very center of the temple, there's what's called the Holy of Holies, or the centermost courts of all the courts. And in that place is where the Ark of the Covenant is going to be, representing that God's presence is most significantly manifest in this place. And then there's a court, and then another court, and another court. And you got to enter court by court by court into the further depths of the, of the, the temple based on how important you were, Okay. So if you weren't Jewish, you barely got in. You could like come in the front door. And then if you were somebody who was a woman, you had to stay in what they called the court of women and then men, et cetera, et cetera. And the only person that got to go in the Holy of Holies one day a year on what was called the Day of Atonement was the high priest. And usually each priest only had one chance to ever go in if they were given that opportunity. That's it. One person gets to go and meet with God in the Holy of Holies and after they pass through all of those courts. So it's not that God's people thought that God was confined to that space. It's just that they believe that God's presence is, is there in a most significant way. It's like God dwells in that center place, right? That, that closed off space. That would be, in that place, that would be the context in, you would, in which you would expect to see God do something or to hear God or to be present with God. So 
This is the common worldview at the time. Can you kind of get your head around that, that that's the way that people were perceiving it? And then in comes Jesus onto the scene. The four Gospels have different places where they start the, the story of Jesus' ministry. And in all four Gospels, except for the book of Luke, the first place we see Jesus encounter people is in an ordinary space. Think about what a big deal this is to these people. The first place that the God of the universe, having become a human being, encounters people in his ministry is not in a sacred place, is not in a holy place or a spiritual place or something that would have a a religious label, but in everyday, ordinary spaces. Those of you who know some of the stories of the gospel, just let your mind go through some of the stories of Jesus in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. How many of those encounters with Jesus happen in everyday, ordinary spaces, by a lake, at someone's home, on the hillside, maybe outside the temple sometimes. Only a few stories are inside of a temple or a synagogue or a place of worship. This is so significant. As people are hearing these stories about Jesus, that God is encountering people in everyday spaces, it would have blown up their paradigm. And so I want to just look at these early encounters, the the first encounters of Jesus coming into the scene the way his ministry is described in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Okay, just really briefly, I want to go through each one because I think it helps us see how radical it is that Jesus is engaging people in these everyday, ordinary spaces. Jesus was proving in this moment that God has left the building. Okay, God has left the building. It's not that God's not present in the building, but God's not confined to that in any way whatsoever. That there's this idea of the sacred space and the secular space. How many people have heard those terms? Sacred and secular. I want you to hold the tension with me as I go through these stories about whether or not there really is such thing as the sacred and the secular. Okay, hold that tension with me as we go into these stories. Kind of wrestle with me about that. So let's start with Luke. Some of you might be familiar with the, one of the first things that Jesus does after he comes out of the wilderness, after he has been tested in the wilderness, he's about to start his ministry. And this is the one where he is in a religious space, a synagogue, a place of worship. And so he's in the synagogue. It says like he was often doing. And as he's there, he's handed a scroll, and he takes the scroll, and he opens it up, and it opens up to Isaiah 61. And I'll put it on the screen, but this is what Jesus reads to the people gathered there. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then it says he rolled up the scroll and he handed it back to the attendant and he said, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing, which I always call Jesus' mic drop moment. He's like, listen, everybody, I'm the fulfillment of that. This was a huge deal. He's nodding to the idea that he is the Messiah. And I think essentially this is Jesus' mission statement. Keep it up here on the screen for me. These are the things that Jesus says his mission and ministry is going to be about. And for those next three years, we think, he goes around and everywhere he goes, these things happen. People are set free. People are healed. People who have been uh, held back by demons are set free. People who have needs are provided for. People who need favor or forgiveness from God are given radical forgiveness, aren't they? And nearly every single one of those mission statement things that Jesus does is done in a space that would not be considered religious, that would not be considered um, sacred or holy in any way. And every person who encounters Jesus doing one of these things, which is many people, right, they have a choice to make. How are they going to respond? 
They see God doing something, something really different than they had come to understand who God was, and they have to decide, how will I respond? And we see stories in the Bible about how people respond. In fact, I want to suggest that the, the many, many stories in different genres that make up the Bible or the big God story as we talk about it with our kids is a story about God doing things that people might not expect and people having to decide how they're going to respond to that God. That's pretty much what the whole thing's about. And it gives us a clue about how we might respond to a God who is doing things in our life that sometimes we don't expect. And so I think these two questions are huge. Put them up on the screen for me. What is God doing and how will I respond? This is what we see here in this story. What is God doing and how will I respond? If Jesus is meeting us, will we recognize it so that we can respond to what Jesus might be doing meeting us in our everyday spaces and in our ordinary chaos? So as I, as I let you know about the, the, the other stories at the beginning of the Gospels, keep these questions in mind because these questions are at the core of the initial beginnings of Jesus' ministry in the other Gospels. In Matthew and Mark, it's the same story. So I'm just going to read the, the Matthew version for you. The very first uh, experience of Jesus stepping onto the scene in the book of Matthew is Jesus calling his first disciples, okay? We'll have it up on the screen. So this is in Matthew 4, starting in verse 18. This is what Jesus says. This is what it says. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, so a sea, he's walking beside the sea, and he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. And they were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with their father Zebedee, preparing their nets. Jesus called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. I don't know if they, like, jumped out the boat and started swimming. I'm not sure exactly what happened there. But immediately, they get out of the boat and they follow Jesus. So this, these guys are on the job, right? They are doing what men in their families had probably done for generations. Every day. They'd get up and they'd fish. They'd bring home the fish. They'd figure out what they're doing to sell the fish. This is their life. They're doing the same thing they had always done. And Jesus enters into their world. Talk about getting someone's attention. He doesn't wait for them to show up at the religious space. He goes right to where they are. And he says, hey, come follow me. And there's a lot of cultural realities to the fact that a rabbi would be calling these young men in that space. But I think it's so profound that he is entering into their vocational space, into their workspace. And as I read this, I have to have a little bit of a confession. I'm, I'm a relatively type A personality. I know some of you are shocked. Um, but I, I think that if God was trying to get my attention at work, and maybe this does happen, and I'm in my flow, you know, anybody get in your flow? You're just like, look at me. I'm, t I'm going off that to-do list. Check, 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 check. When that kind of thing is happening for me, I wouldn't want to stop for the interruption. That would be going against part of who I am to actually stop for the interruption of this kind that's happening here. But how many times in life how often is it that some of the most meaningful experience in life happens in the interruptions? And perhaps there's times when Jesus is trying to get our attention, and maybe it's not in this kind of radical way, obviously, but that God's trying to get our attention. The Spirit's trying to say, hey, pay attention. Pay attention to that coworker, Or maybe you're doing that work around the house. Pay attention to that family member, that roommate. 
I'm trying to do something here and I'm inviting you to join in. How often would we just miss it and not recognize it? What if our posture was just the, the flip the other way around? Okay, instead of thinking, maybe I'm at my workplace and God might want to get my attention. What about, I'm assuming that God's doing something at my workplace and I want to choose to pay attention on a daily basis. This is a little bit of a shift for a lot of us to consider when we're not in a sacred space or a religious space. I was uh, driving in a lift the other day and this guy named Lee was my driver. And it took, it was about a half an hour drive, so you know, you, you can try to be silent with your Lyft driver that whole time, or you can just say, all right, well, we're gonna hear each other's story. Anyway, long story short, Lee ends up sharing with me that he's a Christian, and uh, it, it, he felt comfortable saying that right off the bat because he asked me what I did, and that's how it goes. And so, as we're talking, he says to me, you know, I've only been driving Lyft for a month. He said, but every time I'm searching on the phone and they tell me, okay, I'm picking up Stephanie. I'm picking up this person. He says, I, I, I pray in my car for this person's name. And I just say, God, if there's something you want me to notice, help me notice it so that I can be a part of what you're doing in this person's life. And he said that after a month, he's like, maybe not even half the time, but quite often, God does kind of get my attention around something. He's like, man, you'd be shocked with the kinds of conversations I would end up having. And I was like, you know, trust me, I'm not shocked, but I get what you're saying. Like people, he's like, people will just tell me these things. He's like, I've gotten a chance to pray for people. And so, of course, as I'm getting out of the lift, I just say to, to him, I'm like, Lee, can I pray for you? Man, you're doing ministry right here, and you let me pray for him. But what if we turned it around? And instead of, I wonder if God's going to interrupt me at my workplace, it's, I wonder if I could enter my workplace assuming that God's doing something and God would open up my eyes to that so that I can join in. Okay, so Jesus' ministry starts in Luke with him reading his mission statement. We look at Matthew and Mark, and he shows up at the sea. Not a religious place. He shows up at the sea, and he encounters these fishermen on the job. So then what happens in the book of John? Some of you might know that the book of John is very different than the other three Gospels. The other three are called the Synoptic Gospels, and the book of John is pretty different. And so we do actually see Jesus calling some of his disciples right away, but it's a little bit different. And then we see a pretty interesting story that I want us to look at where many people say this was actually the beginning, the very first thing that Jesus did to inaugurate his ministry. And I think it's a pretty interesting story because it seems as though Jesus is doing so a little bit reluctantly. And it's the story of the wedding at Cana. So if you have a Bible, we're going to look at that in uh, John 2. Jesus and his disciples, and seemingly also his family, are invited to a wedding. And we need to understand that as many weddings go now, we have the ceremony and then we have a dinner. And then at some point, people are like, you need to leave because we've only got this place rented till midnight. In first century culture and in this Jewish culture, oftentimes the wedding feast would go on for up to a week. Some of you are like, do you know how expensive that would be? Like, that would be really expensive, right? Kiefer, these guys planning a wedding right here. I'm going to be at your party for a week, all right? We're going to keep partying. Okay, so this is what this story is. Don't test me, Kiefer, don't test me. So this is what's happening. Let me read the story in John 2, starting in verse 1. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My hour has not yet come. Now, it's important to recognize here that um, if you were to say to me, Woman, I would be offended, so please don't do that. But in, in this, this uh, context, it's kind of like saying ma'am. 
So Jesus is responding to, to his mother very formally. That's what's interesting about this. It's not rude. He's saying, well, madam, why do you involve me? And Jesus replied, my hour has not yet come. And his mother said to his servants, do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. That's a lot of water. And Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. The master of the banquet's probably who's ever hosting the, the wedding. And they did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though, and the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called to the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. That makes sense. So that's just like a little tip. You know? But you have saved the best till now. Now this is the important part. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. It was the first of the signs in which he received his glory. So Jesus says that his time has not come, but he does it anyway. Now people have debated for a long time about why that happens. Why does he do it after he tells his mom, my time has not come? And of course, he's being kind of formal with her because she's asking in front of other people. Okay, she's asking in front of the servants. And so Jesus tells them to fill up the water from these ceremonial washing jars. Now, this is very important, you guys. What, what are we ceremonially washing? Hands, sometimes feet. Okay, fill up the water where people have been washing their hands. And then, servants, trust me, take some of that and put it in a cup. It doesn't say that they saw it turn into wine. There's no poof moment. They fill it up and they bring it to the master. Can you imagine? Okay, I'm giving it to him. And, and he drinks it and it has turned into wine, of course. I think it's so interesting that, that this, this master is so impressed, but it says very clearly Jesus doesn't take the credit. The servants don't say anything. And so the people at the banquet have no idea that Jesus has just done this incredible miracle. The servants see it. The disciples see it. We don't even know for sure if Mary saw it. Jesus is not in this for the wow factor, is he? He's not here to, to, to do some sort of magic trick. That's not what he was trying to do. Here's the thing. There's times in our lives when we encounter God in a space like this. This is a community space, right? A family space. The, the wedding party. This isn't the religious part of the wedding. This is the family and community part. And we encounter God in those kinds of spaces in our lives sometimes, don't we? And have you ever had an experience where you have this feeling that maybe God wants you to do something, but it doesn't totally make sense? And you want to be like, no, 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 you don't understand. I can't take that water to the master. It's, it's people wash their hands in it. But I think there's times when God invites us to do things that don't always make complete sense. And it takes some extra trust for us to be willing to step into it. In this story, the servants follow the instructions, even though they're kind of absurd in a lot of ways. I think that Jesus is not in this for the wow factor because he, I think there's a clue as to why he chooses to do this, even though he says to his mom at first, I'm not, this is not my time. When you look at verse 11, this is what it says. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. It was a sign that revealed his glory. And actually, in the book of John, there's seven signs, including this one, if you want to do a study in the book of John. Seven signs that reveal the glory of Jesus. 
Maybe some of you remember during Advent, I talked about the word glory and how what it means and the depth of its meaning is a manifestation of God's presence. So it revealed that God was present in the person of Jesus, and that's why they believed in him. Do you see how significant that moment is? This was the first moment where these guys who had already chose to follow were like, oh my goodness, I think we're dealing with God here in this everyday, ordinary space. And they believed in him because it was such a significant moment. Jesus turning the water into wine the way he did displayed God's glory that God was present and his disciples believed in him. So follow me on this, okay? The glory of God was around the Ark of the Covenant, right? No one could touch it or they would die. The radiant faces, the priests would come out and their face would be radiant when they've been inside the Holy of Holies. And people would say the glory of God was shining on their face. Right? The glory of God is manifesting, coming out of the Holy of Holies. The glory of God was thought to have been most significantly present in this, you know, 25 foot by 25 foot room called the Holy of Holies at the center of the temple. But now the glory of God was manifest in a person, in a, the fully God, fully man reality of Jesus. This is incredible moment. There he is standing right there before him before all of them, and they believed in him. Because of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection that we celebrated last week, we see that God is not confined to a building or to a sacred space, right? The moment that Jesus dies, what happens? There's an earthquake, and all this is going on, and a huge curtain rips, right? What is the curtain surrounding? The holy of holies in the temple. It is a, a physical reality that, that represents a spiritual reality that God has left the building. That God is now present and accessible by anybody who wants to access God through Jesus. This is what's so significant about that moment. The presence of God is accessible to anyone who wanted to be in relationship with Jesus. And that extends to you and to me. So now for us, because of Jesus, those questions can make sense. What is God doing in our lives and how can we respond? But if we put that same divide up of the sacred and secular divide... We're not going to encounter God in the ways that we might expect, and we might not recognize him. Do you see what I'm saying? I want to suggest today that there's no such thing as a sacred and secular divide. There are not places that are sacred, and there are not places that are secular. That's what I want to call a false dichotomy. There are places that are sacred because God has created the world that God loves, and it's beautiful, and it's amazing, and the people that God created, it's all holy, it's all sacred, but some places are desecrated. And those places are places that God just might call us in to be a part of restoring and redeeming if we have our eyes open and our ears open to the invitation that God might have in our lives. Roland, put up that, that diagram for me. This is just a little diagram I made. You can get all of our slides online when you go to the website and you look at the sermons. There's a little thing that says guide. You can download all of them. So this is just a little, a little guide that I want you to think about. This is the you are here. You're in your vocational space where you work. You're in spaces where you're around your community and your family, like the wedding example. You're in spaces where you're out in the world that God loves, engaging people who don't maybe know the love of God through Jesus. And you're in spaces where you might be able to look into your heart and your mind, and God might be doing something there. How will you respond? My hope for us is that we would be able to step into this in a way 
that would change our reality. Asking these two questions, what is God doing and how can I respond, has been life-changing for me. There's neighbors that I've ended up talking to Jesus about that I never would have expected. There's things that God has done in my mind and heart that I wasn't noticing until I was open to what God was doing. There's ways in which the Holy Spirit has helped me navigate difficult relationships. There's things that have happened that I've been convicted of, of the issues that I care about, and I'm so passionate about them, the justice issues in the world, and God has convicted me that I'm not actually doing anything about those things, and it's led me to do things I never thought I would do. These questions can be life-changing. Let me finish with this story. I was someone who was only six years old when I first trusted Jesus as my Savior. Maybe some of you, it was much later in life, but for me, I was just a six-year-old little girl. And I think at that moment, I became a Christian. But it wasn't until I was about 16 that I became what I would call a Jesus follower. Let me tell you what I mean by that. Before I was 16, I had this idea that Christians live a certain way, and that was what I was supposed to do, was to live like a Christian. I had a relationship with Jesus, but it mostly consisted of prayers, asking Jesus to show up in areas of my life where I felt like I needed Jesus. This is what this meant to me. But when I was 16, the illness that my dad had been living with for nine years took a turn for the worse. And by the time I was 17, he died while I was holding his hand. And during that year, I realized that the prayer to ask God to show up in my life was backwards. It wasn't God who needed to show up in this painful, chaotic situation. I was the one that needed to show up to God. To show up to how Jesus meant it when he said, I will never leave you or forsake you. I give you the Holy Spirit as a counselor. To show up to what God was doing in my family and in my life as we were going through this painful chaos. And from that point on, I'm just telling you my story. It wasn't following Jesus as some sort of platitude. It was a necessity. It was like I didn't really know how to live my life without Jesus actually leading me and being present in those everyday ordinary spaces. It took that kind of earth-shattering experience for me to see that. But man, I still fall back into that false dichotomy a lot. And I still fall back into that idea that I'm just hoping that God will show up when I'm the one that needs to show up to God. And I think it's difficult to discern what God's doing in those spaces. It's difficult to discern what God's doing in a religious space too, isn't it? We're going to talk about that over these next few weeks as we look at ways that Jesus encountered us. But I want to close with this thought. You are here. God is where you are and meets you in your everyday spaces and your ordinary chaos. Will you choose to show up to what God is doing there? Will you recognize Jesus in the parts of your life that you maybe aren't used to expecting him to work in? Because if you do, I guarantee you it will change everything. Let me pray about that for you guys. Jesus, I pray that even this week, there would just be a way in which each person here would have a different awareness of the ways that you are moving in their everyday spaces. As some of us look at our calendar and all that's going to happen in our ordinary chaos, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would open up our eyes to what you're doing around us, that you would open up our ears to your voice and what you might be inviting us into. We don't understand it all, but just help us to recognize that you are not confined to a building. You are not confined to a devotional space. Jesus, you've done everything necessary for us to encounter you in our everyday spaces and allow it to change everything. So as we have this conversation, God, I pray that you would open up our minds, our hearts, our eyes, and our ears, and give us the courage to respond to you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.